<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Every now and then, we celebrate a special event with a live audience on the podcast. We've had memorable conversations in live shows at cinemas and festivals with Roger Corman, David Cronenberg, Larry Fessenden, my nightmare cinema partners, and others. It's a different experience from sitting in a room together, but the conversation is just as lively. However, it is another side of conversation, sitting on a stage in front of a screen, and in some ways, it is more of a performance. But it has a life of its own when it's in front of a room full of fans, and it always feels special. This conversation with writer-director Duncan Jones and composer Clint Mansell, celebrating the 10th anniversary of their film Moon, marks the beginning of a new relationship between Postmortem and the Alamo Drafthouse in Los Angeles, and I'm looking forward to new live events to share here. The collaboration between filmmaker and composer is a unique and powerful one. We went deep into that process with David Cronenberg and Howard Shore at the American Cinematheque not too long ago, but every such collaboration is unique unto itself. Though both Jones and Mansell have many credits to their names, we pretty much keep exclusively to Moon here. It's a unique movie in many ways. It's independent, imaginative, and highly ambitious, and sound and music are a huge component in what makes it work. Duncan grew up with powerful lineage in music, and yet his interest developed more in the visual storytelling sense. Clint came out of a youth in rock bands, specifically Pop Will Eat Itself, before he scored his first film, Darren Aronofsky's Pie. When the marriage works, music can make a wonderful film soar. It adds a level of emotion that amplifies the words and pictures. And our conversation sheds light on a very important cinematic collaboration. We'll take you into the Alamo Drafthouse to dig deep into sound and vision right after this. Your homepage for horror is here. Fangoria.com is now live and brimming with the digital horror content that you crave. Fangoria.com is your destination for all of the stories that couldn't fit in the physical magazine. Long-form pieces, deep dives, and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, exclusive access to the Fangoria vault, as well as a constant curation of our favorite links from across the internet. Right now, all current subscribers to the magazine are automatically members of Fangoria.com. And as promised, the content of the new issues will be forever in print only. If you're not already a subscriber, check out the new Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use the promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. That's Fangoria.com. 
I'm Mick Garris, and live from the beautiful Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles, this is the Postmortem Podcast. And it's a special event tonight. It's the 10th anniversary screening of Moon with director Duncan Jones and composer Quint Mansell, and we are here to celebrate this event. So, Duncan, how did it come about? Uh, you come from a musical family, and... Uh, you confess to not having much musical ability in your life. Uh, it's untapped. I think that's the nice way to put it. <laughs> okay. As in, I have no musical ability. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I'd been working for a long time in, in com commercials and doing music videos and um, things like that, knowing that eventually I wanted to do feature films and um, had written something that I was hoping would be my first film and sent it out to Sam Rockwell, who I was a big fan of, hmm. um, hoping that I might be able to get him interested in it. And he loved the idea of this film, but he wanted to play the lead instead of the, off, the, the part that I'd offered, which was this villain. So it wasn't actually Moon at all. Ah, it was for a I film see. called Mute, which I ended up making um, Just more recently. Just last year it came out, right? Um, yeah. So um, we met up to discuss that film, realized that wasn't going to work out. But I really, really enjoyed just talking to him and, and wanted to work with him. And after we discussed the kind of things that we might do together, this idea of a science fiction film that was kind of small in scope with a blue collar kind of working guy um, as, as the lead, um, I said, look, let me get back to you. I'm going to try and write some ideas of what this film could be. And, and that was basically the genesis of Moon. So it was an independent film. And it was your first film, and it's a movie star film, and, <laughs> as an independent film. So were you particularly a science fiction genre fan at the time? You wanted to do something scientific? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I was a sci-fi fan, yeah. and um, you know, I think, I think the way that film came together because of Sam's interest and, and our shared interest in, in science fiction films from the late 70s, early 80s, the Outlands, the you know Ridley Scott's Alien, right. um, Silent Running, those kind of movies. You know, we wanted to make something that felt like that. And at the time we made this, which would have been you know 2007, 2008, which is when we were putting it together, mm -hmm. um, most science fiction that was coming out was was not that kind of thing. It was spaceship it, battles it, and it things was, like it, that. It was right. not grounded. It was not attempting to be hard. What's called hard sci-fi. It was. Right. It was just a. A whole different feel and i think we wanted to kind of see if we could kind of course correct or at least give that option for the audience to see something which felt more like the things we grew up with well there's a symbiotic relationship between a director and a composer that's really important we did one previous show with david cronenberg and howard shore talking about their work on dead ringers and other films together so quint tell me about how this relationship began for the two of you you were in a band and then you started composing for Darren Aronofsky with Pi and several other of his films. So how did this relationship begin? Um, well, I mean, to embarrass Duncan a little, um, this goes back a long way, you know. Um, uh, his dad changed my life, you know, without, without putting too fine a point on it. For those who don't know, uh, Duncan's father is David Bowie. <laughs> yeah. I was like eight years of age when I saw his dad on Top of the Pops. And I'm going like, it's, it's difficult to appreciate now, you know, but 
we lived in a black and white world and seeing his dad on top of the pops, the world went colour, technicolour, you know? And I was like eight years of age, something changed my life and I just got like, I don't even know what music is, but I love it and I want to be that, you know? And so I remember him being born even though I didn't even know him, you know? And <laughs> unfortunately for him, he was like obviously thrust into being a celebrity before he was even... I was a speak probably, you know, even with anyways. a celebrity name of Zowie. Yeah. yeah, you know, and but like, so you, what I'm saying about that is like, yeah, I I started off on a journey that started with his dad really to be, to wanting to be in a band, where he'd be a musician and all that sort of stuff, and then years later, to to meet Duncan and. No, no, I mean, okay, yeah, I, I'd sort of, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done, I'd written songs and been in bands and I'd got into film music, but then when we actually met at a, I, we, I was doing a gig with my band and we met briefly at that show, you know, and um, then a couple of years later, I got I got a call from my agent saying, like, oh, it's this script and it's from somebody called Duncan Jones, I'm going like, I go, oh God, I, I know who that is. You know, we got drunk together. We did get, drunk. but that, that's why I don't remember. I don't drink anymore. But back then, I did. I drink much more now. <laughs> but when I read the script, I mean the script. I mean the script. Really, for Moon, it's the script you dream of of receiving because it, it's it, it's still to this day probably the best script I've ever read. It's it, it, it's incredible. And Duncan's direction, Sam Rockwell, all that sort of stuff. You know, but it, it was. As sort of convoluted as that sound, it, it was sort of kind of easy, really. The I mean, script comes in. One one thing that made it a little bit different, I think, is that is that because it was my first feature, yeah, and totally giving everyone the the respect they're due. Everyone was a bit concerned about wanting to know what it was going to be before they signed on to it, which I think was fair enough. What was the vision? Yeah, I, I'd never made a film before, yeah. so you know, what what, what are we going to get? What is it actually? I mean, it sounds good in principle, but what are we actually going to get? So when we were making the film and editing it, the temp was other people's music. It just so happened all of that music was Clint's music. <laughs> it was Requiem for a Dream. It was The Fountain. It was basically just all of his stuff. So when we did actually show him the film for him to kind of make his final, I yeah, I'll, I was I'll do seduced. It. <laughs> it was it was Clint wall to wall, which I know is actually a lot of times it's, harder. It's harder, but but for me. I could see, you know, you've just talked about films. Silent Running really being the main one for me. Because mm -hmm. I grew up with Silent... Silent Running was one of my favourite films. But everybody hated the Joan Baez songs in it. <laughs> I loved the Joan Baez songs in it. <laughs> so Everybody's going like, oh, it sucks, that sucks. And I'm like, no, it's fucking genius, you know? <laughs> and Duncan and, Mo and, and the Moon thing got that. There, there was the, the emotion. I mean, I... And, I say, the script was brilliant, but the moment you see Sam Rockwell for a, for a frame, he's gone, okay. Well, what's interesting about what you did with the score is that it's mostly atmospherics until the clone situation reveals itself. And well, then melody comes into well, the, play. The, the reality of it is, like, the composer's job is so easy when everything on screen is happening and I have nothing to do. I mean, because... You're not, you know, Sam Rockwell is doing everything in it. He doesn't need any help from me or anybody else. It's the job's done, so you can join in where where we need to sort of expand on something. That guy has just delivered everything. You know, I mean, like 
my favourite quote of, of my own, in fairness, <laughs> is, it's easy to score a good film, it's impossible to score a shit one. <laughs> I mean, and that's the truth. Yeah. You, you don't want to be doing the heavy lifting of making a scene you work. Don't. With, like, by forcing emotion or forcing it to work a particular way with the music. Well, what was your philosophy? What was your initial discussion with Quint uh, about what you were going for? Obviously, you had a temp score in there, but I assume there were conversations before that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think there was a certain uh, seeing seeing eye to eye on yeah. on on. Yeah, there was, but but the reality of it was what was delivered to me kind of didn't really need a lot of explaining. If you yeah. get it, it was there, you right. know. The, so you didn't need long conversations about what it was obvious was going of, what, of yeah. what was going on. I mean, it was clear, you know. Um, and you know, I've, I've worked on a lot of films. And often it is not clear. <laughs> it's not there, you know. I mean, just because you make a film doesn't mean to say it's going to work, you know. And and this worked. Well, and it worked a, because yeah. the script and Duncan's vision was clear. Well, there's you know? a reason that directors work repeatedly with composers, the way that you two have worked together, the way you've worked with Darren Aronofsky, and all of that. Yeah, you know, I've got to be honest, though, over the period of time that that's occurred, I'm not sure that's a actually a great thing. It is a, it, it's great because you have a shorthand. But I'm not sure because I think, I think you know, obviously Duncan did War, Warcraft that I was not involved with, which is right. absolutely great. But I, but I think that, that there's something about, I mean, I, I, I'm just doing my third film with Ben Wheatley and I love Ben. But I think there's something about going off and exploring other things that is actually really kind of vital to what we do. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think it's good to just to assume you're going to be part of that. And I think, I think in our case, our very unique case, um, we have worked together twice. We've, I, we kind of fiddled around with trying to work together more than that. But it's yeah. two, two times we've actually done the jobs together. And I think both of us have changed so dramatically as people yeah. in those 10 years yeah. it was a te it was basically a new relationship and a, and and a new way of seeing I how agree. to make movies from 10 and years I, ago to and when I we think, made and I Mute. think that that's important you know um I say I mean moon is really one of if I had to look at my career and I and go like okay it's in the top two probably you know mm. of, of films that I'm completely and utterly Amazed that I was involved with, and we did something with because because I, I believe it's it just works and it works because it's good, you know. And, it, and I despair sometimes. I, I wonder if we can ever find that that almost that magical place again where you can make a movie for five million dollars and kind of have little infer, infer, inter, interference mm -hmm. to just to be it's able possible. to really express yourself. Um, and it was a it's a beautiful thing, you know. And, I, and I'm very very happy that. I was in part of it. Obviously, you you had created that relationship with Sam, and and it's so easy from a composer's point of view when like that guy on screen is just nailing it. Mm. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You know, we, we, there's always going to be scenes where a director might turn to you and say, "Like, I need a bit of help here." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's just that's just the it's nature inevitable. of the business, yeah. of course. Yeah. But, but man, and when there's it, also discovery. I mean, there's, there's, there's discovery you get. I remember two particular examples in Moon. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. I'm sure there's a few people who haven't seen it, but. Tough. Um, <laughs> there's a, 
No, you know what? That is too much. I can't actually say that. That's oh, really uh, unfair. Okay. It's okay. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> well, Duncan, there are some people who haven't seen the film. <laughs> I would love to know what the initial pitch was. This was your story, an original story that you had come up with. And when you were meeting with financiers or studios or whomever, what was your approach? And, and how did you put what the movie was that you wanted to make? I mean, the, 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 yeah, the making of the film is a story in its own right. And, and, and it was not traditional in that way. Um, I'd come out of the commercials industry. I had a very, uh, lovely benefactor who was willing to help me out, Trevor Beatty, um, who, who basically gave us some seed money to kind of get things going. And then we were able to raise some money from a couple of other people, one of them being Trudy Styler, who is very known in the UK as being someone who supports independent British movies. Love Trudy. She'd done Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. A and great film. Kind of yeah. made, made, did Phil through there as well. Oh, really? Yeah. British yeah. independent films. She's mm -hmm. always been kind of there to sort of support that. Yeah. So we were able to get about halfway to our budget through through people like that. Um, and then we did something you really, really shouldn't do if you make movies. We started, <laughs> with permission, started spending the money as if we were making the movie. Wow. Hiring studio space, building sets, getting our contract with our actors, not having all the money for the film yet. But the train was going down <laughs> but, the hill, the, and so people saw the momentum people, it was People taking. saw a film getting made. So, so the, the kind of, the tail, the, you know, the tail that we needed, um, fell into place, but not until two weeks after we started shooting the movie. Can um, I, can I interject here? <laughs> like, and, and I, I, this is what I remember you telling me at the time. I, yeah. and I may have, it's 10 years and like, you know, I may have changed this story over time, but the, I, the fish I, was this big. I, yeah. <laughs> but I was really impressed with this where, where, where you said to me, you kind of go, okay, we can get a certain amount of money. How can we maximize what we do? And you said like, you know, well, getting one actor for a start off, you yeah, know, yeah. and then you go, okay, we can build a set and we have a different feature in, in four corners of one room. And I was really impressed by this sort of, that to me is like sort of, we got fuck all. We, how are we going to make it work? Yeah. And we're going and, and, and the weird thing is like, I've always found parameters or limits ignite your imagination. It, it was, Absolutely. it was, de as a film, it was very strong on parameters. <laughs> there were a lot of limitations yeah. we set for yeah. ourselves and those that we would rather not have had, but had to have. Yeah. But but they defined what the and what that the film to me is, is is brilliant, you know, because because you, you have to have to put on the show it, you know? and uh, yeah yeah the more you can't pay for the more requires your ingenuity. I mean when, when I did Pie right I mean which was my first film and I was living in New York and I I, I mean it's it's 1997 at this point I've got like an Atari computer I've got an Akai sampler. And I've got a Nordlead um, half a bongo, synth, right? You know, <laughs> that's what I've got. Lightning strikes the building, the Nordlead's dead. So now I've got two pieces of equipment, <laughs> and that that sort of, like I say, that limitation. That uh, the scariest thing is like, do anything you want. You got to do anything you want. Fuck, I don't even know where to start. But those limitations are really, really defining for you and make you think. Within the box, if you like. Within How do I get the best out yeah. of this? Yeah, and, and that's when, when he said that to me, I thought, this is good. I know this is good because you, it's forcing you to think in a way that... Imagination over budget. Yeah, yeah. it is, you know, and it, it, it's special, I think, you know. So, Duncan, who were the people who inspired you uh, in film? And how early did it start? <laughs> I, I mean, I was I was very very fortunate. I I, I had a very 
um, unusual, unique, even upbringing. Um, had the chance to be on some film sets when I was growing up. Um, had the chance to meet Jim Henson um, and and be on um, you know sound stages where imagination was running wild and um, you know incredible sets were being built. Whether it was you know Labyrinth when that's when the sets for that were being built or um, you know, uh, was it Julian Temple who did Absolute Beginners yes, and they yeah. and they built the the Soho in the London Soho in the 1950s set for that greatly underrated movie by the way greatly I underrated and film. also I mean especially for a British another British independent film the amount of money and effort and artistry that went into the building of those sets um, and then being very you know quite young and being able to walk on those and see the magic you know of of people's imagination being unleashed and teams of people bringing it to life. Um, that just had huge impact on me. And as I said, music was never something which really kind of spoke to me in the same way that film did. Um, and, you know, eventually, in a very convoluted way, I got to uh, the time in my life where I realized that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and, and building sets and, 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 and creating worlds from my imagination that was really what inspired me and and you know filmmakers like tony scott who i got the chance to work with briefly is you know when i was growing up um or work under um and you know th those kind of people were, were 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 really the ones who gave me the excitement and confidence that maybe i could do something like that well one thing i have to say is i met your dad a few times and uh, a couple times we talked about what he wanted to do more than anything else was make movies, to direct movies, and he never got the opportunity to fulfill that. And here you are completing this circle. It must feel fantastic. It does. I mean, I, you know, I, I know that, that, that Dad always was sort of dipping his toe in the water with, with acting, you know, and, and, and you know, had, had a, a serious resume by the end of it and got the chance to work with a lot of incredible people um, along the way. Um, so so I, think, I think those experiences only added the uh, the the, the fuel to the fire for him about hopefully getting the chance to do that one day. I mean, unfortunately he passed away when he did, cause you never know, maybe he would have, maybe he would have tried. And I'm sure he would have been great. I mean, he did music videos and things, but a yeah. feature film would have been fantastic. Yeah. But you are able to carry on this legacy and your films have dealt a lot with the imagination. They're not a hundred percent earthbound in that they go into fantastical directions, source code, Warcraft, all of that. Is that by choice? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I don't know where the future will take me. <laughs> um, pardon the yeah. pseudo pun. Um, <laughs> I'll let you make the joke too. <laughs> but, but, but I do feel like um, the humanity that exists in my films, if it exists, I think it does. Um, well, it's obvious I, that it I, does. I, yes. I, think it, I think it only... Uh, works, um, you know, I, I think audiences are willing to accept it in part because of the fantastical nature of the genres and the, and the settings. So I think I can kind of wear my heart on my sleeve a little bit in my movies and, and people kind of accept it. And, and the earnestness of it may be a little bit camouflaged by the, by the genres that the, that the films themselves are. Well, you lay yourself bare when you make a film. Yeah. And in the case of Moon, it's your first movie. It's a relatively low budget. Um, it's an independent film. There were some technically demanding things, especially when you're talking about replicating Sam Rockwell two or three times. Tell me about those 
what kind of research you did and, and how you handled those scenes because you had to hold on to the humanity of it as you're doing something incredibly technical. Well, I know. I mean, you, you were telling us earlier that you had the chance to do the, the podcast on Dead Ringers. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the uh, Criterion Edition version of Dead Ringers had an amazing uh, film school on, on how to have one actor playing multiple parts. And, um, you know, my, my, myself and, and, and Gary Shaw, who was my cinematographer and Stuart Fennigan, my producer, we, we spent a lot of time going over those criterion, uh-huh. uh, special features to see how they did that. Um, and learned a lot. Then I also had the chance to talk to, to Spike Jones, who, who had done adaptation with, with Nicolas Cage. Um, and he gave me some, you know, really useful advice about, when you look at the script, choosing who is driving the scene and make mm. sure that you shoot that part first, because obviously, you know, it, it makes sense. You know, it, it makes it's common sense when you when you think about it. But to actually have that sort of laid out for you, the the, the usefulness of that is 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 really uh, use is really clear. Um, you want the person who's driving the scene to basically be shot first, and then whatever you do after that is a reaction to that person that the, the performance that drives the scene. Well, tell me about the conversations you had with Sam Rockwell about that, because it has to be very demanding, even more demanding on the actor than on the director. Yeah, well, when, when Sam finally agreed to do the film, you know, I, I went across to New York where he was based, and he and myself and a, an actor friend of his, Yul Vasquez, um, got together, and we basically just workshopped the, the script for about 10 days, which, again, for a, an independent film is, is pretty unique. Um, but it made a huge difference. A lot of changes to to just the nuance of of who Sam who Sam's character was, and the various Sams that he plays. Because how do we differentiate the them? Yeah. Yeah, how do how do we do that? And we and we really got into that during the, those rehearsal days, um, and we're able to start picking apart. Okay, what makes these guys different? What do the three years of different experience that they've had do to them? And and how does that come out in in who they are? I was also fascinated. There are miniatures in this movie, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, that is almost never the case anymore. <laughs> and tell me about that, because these are Greg Jean-style miniatures that, that you're working with here. We had, we had always planned to, to go the miniatures route, hmm. just just for budget, really, and, and the way we, we kind of thought about how we could get the best use out of it. And then something miraculous came and hit us. Um, the, the, the writer's strike. Um, which basically shut down the UK film industry at oh that my time, God. and all of the all of the top tier um, craftsmen at Shepperton and Pinewood and all these studios were available. They were out of they work. Were, they weren't working. <laughs> all of the stuff that they were planning on doing had disappeared. So we were able to get some 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 of the really top end people working in in model miniatures. Um, people who'd worked on Alien and who'd worked on these old movies, um, Bill Pearson and, 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 and the team that he was used to working with. Um, and they all came, you know, we were able to get them on board and, and really punch way above our, 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 our weight. Oh, it looks amazing. I remember you saying to me, which, which, which kind of blew my mind, that with those miniatures, there was like an algorithm that you could, you know, you shoot it and then you slow it down to, and it, it sort of translates into weight. Yeah, there's a, there's yeah. a very it's like specific, amazing, you know? there's a very specific, there's a cinematographer that we had specifically for the miniatures shoot. It's like 64 frames or 48 Who, frames or he, something. Yeah, like he had, that, yeah. he had a, he had a mathematical equation for working out not just 
to get the scale right, but also to take into consideration the gravity of the moon. <laughs> yeah. So that so oh, the wow. bounce and the speed uh, of, so the ba- of the bounce. There are a lot of correct. considerations. There, there's there. a lot of math going on in there. <laughs> Now, uh, Quint, when you're doing a science fiction film, but science fact fiction, very fact based, what, what philosophically do you look for? What are there certain sounds? I mean, it's a very electronic score and yet there's keyboard that goes melodic and, and it, it has moods. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, um, I mean, we've talked about some of those sort of science fiction films that we grew up with, like, like Silent Running, which, yeah. I was a huge fan of, but but to be honest, that was almost like a secondary c- consideration, really, to the emotional aspect of the film and where it was going. And Sam, really, I mean, you know, as a composer, you are really sort of, well, you should be, I, I think, led by what's going on the screen, you know, and 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 Sam Rockwell's performance, Sam Bell really dictated everything that needed to to happen if you like so there's, there's obviously an element of confusion i'm not sure quite what we're at in a good way i mean confusion in the film seems to scare people i mean but i uh, when i'm watching the film i don't need to know everything that's going on i f- i understand that i'm probably going to find out well you're a magician and, and you're I'm, misleading I'll, I'll, well, intentional you know, misleading. You, and that's part of the story you know yeah. but but his performance really trans- is nothing to do with science fiction, really. Mm-hmm. This is an emotion of a person who realizes that perhaps he's been cheated and everything that he has got to know really is not what is true to him, you know. And that is the devastating core of the story. I mean... Yeah, I mean, as I was saying earlier, I mean, the moon to me is a very political story too, you know, with the conditions that he's, you know, he's on the moon, he's doing this and whatever. But the core of it is really whether this guy is human or not. He's like, my God, this is a devastating situation to find yourself in. And that for me was what really was the the central attraction to it, the humanity really. And then, And then when you accept that, I say you, I'm kind of guided by Sam and, uh, uh, and Duncan is to where we can kind of let loose that stuff. And, you know, and, and to me, the, the most devastating shot in the movie is just when he looks and you see Earth in the distance and it's fucking heartbreaking that you, you are so, not so close, but it's there and you, you, there's no way you can reach Well, it, melancholy no. seems to be the strongest element yeah. of this movie. Um, so... All of that emotional content, but you also put a, a lot of work into the reality of the science of it. How much research went into that when you were there, doing it? There was, you know, early on when we were, you know, I, I'd kind of, kind of focused in on what I thought the film needed to be about. There was, there was kind of some personal issues. I, I, I was having a long distance relationship at the time with a woman on the other side of the planet. So that kind of played <laughs> into it. I'd spent, fairly recently three years in nashville tennessee at graduate school and felt very isolated there so that kind of fed into the three years of of being on a moon base um and and then i read this book by a guy called robert zubrid called entering space and it was the it was the business of how do you get humanity to go into space in a way that is fiscally profitable and it's a it's a very 
capitalist take on the space race, but all of the all of the fic- fiction of lunar industries, mining helium three, how it would work, came from that book. Just kind of a very practical guide of how do you make money in space. Wow! And and that really kind of just created lunar industries and and what the what their business was, what Sam's job was, why would you save money when you could if you're a business, and how would you do it? So all of that kind of stuff came from that Robert Zubrin book. What's your writing process? I know you co-wrote the script. Yeah. Um, what What is your process? Do you start in the yeah. early day? Do you go all day? Do you skip times? <laughs> Do you go back and forth? One of your types and the other one. I mean, I would like to give a huge shout out to Nathan Parker here, who yeah. was the who who wrote the the screenplay and wrote the first couple of drafts. I you know I gave him a I think a very solid blueprint through through my my treatment, but he was the one who delivered and and. Uh, you know, I did my work with with Sam Rockwell out in in New York for the rehearsals and added my touches, but I want him to to know I respect and love the work he did on it. Yeah. Um. Uh, my process when I am writing, um, it, it it's it's very it's a very slow initial process, it, and it ramps up in speed. The more I know where I'm going, the faster I can go, and and I think it's it's. It's the blank page. Yeah, and getting for me, I work with very, very uh, specific beat points, and it and it will end up being maybe four or five pages of of one one line beats that just take me through almost every element of the story. Um, yeah. Well, we need to wrap it up. Yeah. I'm being told. So, uh, but I would love to know what you haven't done in film that you would love to do. Um, I've done, th- I mean, I've done two science fiction films in the future. I've done one science fiction film that was contemporary and I've done a fantasy film. I, I do want to move out of those genres, maybe stay in genre, but, but different genres. Um, so I, I think that's what I'd like to Is do. there a genre in particular you'd like to dip your toe in? Uh, yeah, but I can't, I don't know if it's healthy for me to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Until okay. I can find out if there's a way to do it. <laughs> Fair enough. And Clint, what about you? Is there anything musically that you have not done that you would love to attack, to uh, bite into? No, seriously, I'm ready to retire. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I know that's. A, uh, I, I'm, I'm dragging honest. you back one more time. I mean, I, I'd, I'd love <laughs> one last job. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I, yeah. I'm I'm happy to, um, you know, because you, you never know what's going to come your way you know but um i'm finding it um i find the industry a little uninspiring at the moment not because of the work and stuff like that the parameters that are now being you know the way films are made you know i would if somebody or duncan turned around and said like we got a five million dollar movie i'm on board yeah because I just, I just want to be in a place where no strings attached, no rules. We yeah. do it our way. I don't, I don't, you know, I, 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 the only, the only real ability I think I have is, is kind of what it is. And, and, and I, that doesn't flourish in mainstream film and we need it to be this, we need, but I've, I've, I'm really excited by the unknown and if it feels good, go with it, you know, yeah. um, I find it quite hard in in, in the current climate, you know. Hmm. Films like Requiem for a Dream, Moon, 
high rise that I did with Ben, you know. Yeah. Um, Hard to get those through a studio it's system. It's very difficult, yeah. you know. And, and I, I also feel that, um, you know, to move things forward, to be creative, what, we kind of need to not be pressured into whether it's going to put bums on seats. You know, I mean, obviously, we all want to be successful in that. Especially but these seats. Yeah, that's got the right. most comfortable looking. This is the only time I've done a Q&A where I've just been jealous to sit in your seats. <laughs> well, Maybe you have the food, too, because that looks pretty good as well. Well, it's great to have independent imaginations working independently and creating something like Moon. And I just want to congratulate you on this 10th anniversary of this very special film. And thank you, Duncan Jones, and thank you, Clint Mansell, thank for you. joining us tonight. Thanks. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks very much. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.